No, Leo DiCaprio is too handsome and too... Curtis LeMay is a is a kind of tough guy. He's hard-bitten. In the day, this dates me, Charles Bronson would play him. You know, muttering, man, a few words, kind of has a kind of physicality to him. Leo DiCaprio doesn't have the kind of necessary physicality. He's too cerebral for that. For Curtis May was like a hands-on pilot. He's like one of the great pilots of his generation. He's famous for like fixing B-29 bombers himself. Like, that's not Leo DiCaprio, right? That's someone else. In my opinion, Malcolm Gladwell is a one-in-a-generation kind of writer, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, or a more virtuous, thoughtful, and gentle Hemingway, without all the drinking, cavorting, and tragedy. He is Canadian, after all, and very proud of it. In this episode of Behind the Brand, I convinced Malcolm to reveal something personal about himself that most people do not know. In his new book, The Bomber Mafia, he chronicles the history and rivalry between an elite group of chemists and physicists compete during World War II to see who can help the Allied forces, specifically the United States, win and end the war against Japan. Malcolm is a prolific writer and the author of several of my favorite books, including David and Goliath, Outliers, The Tipping Point, and many others. He's also the host of The Revisionist Podcast, which I also recommend checking out. He has an uncanny way of finding the story behind the story and pointing out the most important lessons often hiding or undocumented and fascinating true stories in history. I know you'll love this episode with the incomparable Malcolm Gladwell. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, our friends at the Dot Store Domains, where you can get your own custom Dot Store domain to set up your own website to sell products or services. You know, different from any .com or .net or other extension, the Dot Store extension really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about your domain name, Dot Store. It instantly tells people your website is a store and lets your website and URL do the marketing for you. I tried it out myself and I'm loving it. I set up my own dot store with Behind the Brand. It's behindthebrand.store and you can find some of my favorite books from best-selling authors who've also been on the show and give me a great deal to sell their books or sell a few copies of their books better than you get on Amazon. You can get your own dot store domain by going to my special link at bit.ly forward slash your custom store. That's http colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash your custom store. Just go to bit.ly forward slash your custom store and you can check it out. Now let's get into the episode. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a podcaster and writer and the author of the upcoming Bomber Mafia. And you're listening to Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the incomparable Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you. I had to be here. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Which job? Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back in the chronology because uh, people may know you um, for your various works, You know, whether it's um, your mm-hmm. prolific books, um, your editorial could be your podcasts, etc., um, even your masterclass. But let's go back in the chronology to young Malcolm. Um, and I often ask this question, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? What were you thinking about? What was, what was young Malcolm dreaming about? Oh, uh, you know, 
I mean, I, there was a period, very brief period. Uh, first of all, I never thought about that question until I was a senior in college. And then I decided I wanted to go into advertising, and I tried and failed to get a job in advertising. Um, and then I applied on a lark for a job at a magazine in America. I was in Canada and got the job um, quite by accident and quite by surprise. And that was it. I, that's why I became a journalist. I got a job for $9,000 a year as an assistant editor on a kind of mildly disreputable <laughs> right-wing magazine. <laughs> can you can you say which one it was? I'm curious. It's called it's called The American Spectator. Actually, I had such I had a lot of fun there. I didn't last very long, but I had a lot of fun there. Well, and and I asked that question with context. The context is this, you know, um I think to oversimplify things a little bit, there's two camps of people right now. You know, there's a whole group of people who are young coming, you know, out of high school or maybe college and they're thinking, what are what am I going to do with my life? And then because of the current pandemic and situation, there's a whole group of middle-aged people who are, you know, either downsized, lost their job, and they're having to reset, and they're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And so um, I like to talk about signals and, you know, like mm -hmm. how you know what you want to do, how you find your passion. But, like, did you have influences from your parents? Like, did they steer you in a certain direction? Did they say, Malcolm, we want you to become, uh, you know, a plumber or a scientist or a you know, run a flower shop or something? Uh, zero explicit direction. Okay. By design, I think. Okay. Um, you know, I think they were totally open to whatever I wanted to do. It never came up. I don't, my parents provided, I think they recognized that I didn't really want any kind of direction, so they never provided it. Um, and uh, they, my mom, you know, was a writer, and so there was a kind of, um, uh, implicit, I suppose, endorsement of that line of, but um, she would never have said it that I should be a writer too because she was a writer. In fact, you know, writing was not her profession. Her profession was, she was a family therapist. Um, so no, there wasn't. It was all very. It's all, it's all happenstance. There is no. There there was, and is no plan. Mm -hmm. Well, what was it about advertising, for example, like? Were you interested in selling things, or was it more like behavioral patterns, like why people buy? What was what was the the, the magnetism to advertising? Um, well, I couldn't really think of anything else, <laughs> and I liked the idea. I you know I was always a fan of advertising. I thought that to tell a story in thirty seconds struck struck me then, and strikes me to this day as the most incredible. Hard, fantastic, brilliant thing you can do. I mean, I'm in awe of TV commercials to this day. Good ones are, they're extraordinary. They're like, now, and now that I tell stories for a living, I know how insanely hard it is to tell a story in 30 seconds. But back then it struck me as, and I used to do ads. One of the ways I amused myself in college was I decided with a friend to do a kind of tongue-in-cheek marketing campaign for the school uh -huh. football team which was a team that uh, no one cared about, no one attended the games. Yeah. And it was, it was not, the, not the varsity football game team, the, inter, the um, intramural football team. Okay. And so we, they were called the Pelicans. And so 
I started something called Pelican Power. <laughs> and it was unexpectedly successful, my campaign. And people started going to the games, and then they won the championship, the Mullock Cup. And I was sort of part of, you know, the celebration, because I was their PR guy. Yeah. And I, that, I just thought that was kind of fun. So I got it. I, I thought, oh, maybe I should be an advertising person. We have that in common, actually. I, I had sort of the same kind of path where I was making up fun commercials, um, even sometimes ironically. Uh, and also something you just said kind of sounds like something Mark Twain said a while ago, which is contrary to what a lot of people think. You know, you think, you know, to give a long speech or to tell a long story or write a long book, that's really difficult. But I think Twain said, you know, to write the shorter story, that's where it really takes a lot of discipline and practice because you have yes. to... I'm writing you a long letter because I haven't the time to write you a short letter. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, totally relatable. Um, and and so you've had this uh, career as a writer, um, a storyteller. You know, this show, we talk about brands a lot. It's called Behind the Brand. And the premise is, you know, it's the... it's a, it's you know it's about entrepreneurs, innovators, um, other people, and the stories behind their success. So, what do you think? What is the Malcolm Gladwell brand? Um, if I'm talking to Seth Godin, he would push back and say, "Brian, I, I am not a brand. I'm a human being." But mm -hmm. for the sake of this, you know, discussion of of brands, um, what is the Malcolm Gladwell brand? Well, I'm mean, first of all. I will echo Seth, but let's for the sake of the discussion. Uh, well, if you mean by that, what do people think of when they think of me? Yeah. If they're readers of my books or, um, well, I suppose they think of me. I mean, I'm a Canadian. That's pretty important. Um, uh, I'm. Why is that important to you? Well, it means that I'm reasonable and mild. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't carry a gun. You know, yeah. I, I think people should get along. Um, yeah. I would say, I mean, I, you know, some people say that I'm a contrarian, but I actually don't think I am a contrarian. I think I'm the opposite of contrarian. I actually am, I think I, the, most of what I say is very, very, very commonsensical, but I think there's interesting ways to say things that are commonsensical. So that's what I think. I know there are real contrarians out there. I'm not really one of them because I'm not that interested in conflict. Um, yeah. Why, why, why do you think they think that you're a contrarian? Well, you know, people make a mistake when they... There's two different um, conditions here. Condition number one is you have told me something I didn't know. Condition number two is you have told me something that contradicts something... I know, right? The contrarian is the second category. I'm the first category, I think. I think really what I'm doing is telling people things I didn't know, right? So when I think about my most successful revisionist history episodes, uh, they're really about telling you something you didn't know. They don't take an existing belief and say, you're wrong. They say, you know, I did a P one of my favorite ones was called uh, Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment. And it was a podcast about the Brown. What, it, what, what effect did the Brown versus Board uh, civil rights decision have on black teachers? 
And that's not a, a thing. I think it was one of my best episodes ever. It is not contrarian. It does not tell you that what you thought you knew is wrong. It told you you didn't know the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. I'm way, way more interested in that second thing. The whole story is what I'm interested in. Yeah. And it also seems like you're interested in looking at things in ways that people haven't considered before. And I can tick off all of your books. I mean, in fact, you know, <laughs> you know, nice. here's, the, here's the Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a big fan. Um, you know, you, you talk about that in David and Goliath. You talk about that in Talking to Strangers. Um, I mean, it's almost a thread that runs through all of your work. Mm hmm. You know, hey, you, reader, you probably didn't notice this, but I want to bring it to your attention. And sometimes it's uh, subtle. Sometimes it's a metaphor, right, mm -hmm. like David and Goliath. So I think that's very interesting. Can I tell you a funny story? Um, sure. You're <laughs> – so I was um, – I've been a fan from afar from a long time. And um, Seth Godin and I became friends about a decade ago. And and I knew that you guys knew each other and your friends, I'm sure. Uh, but I resisted, you know, asking the favor for an introduction because I wanted to try and get through to you the proper way and and invite you on this show and whatnot years ago. And I tried, you know, contact Little Brown and, you know, talk to all the folks. But for some reason, and, and of course you're in high demand and you're busy, it just didn't, the timing never worked out. And like year would go, year after year, I would try and fail, try and fail. And, but I was manifesting this Malcolm Gladwell, you know, power, this aura. And one random day in Laguna Beach, I'm with my family walking down the stairs. I've got towels, beach chairs. I've got a couple kids hanging up my neck. And who's walking up the stairs or up the ramp you know, like two ships passing is Malcolm Gladwell. You were there in Laguna Beach it's at true. a Wall Street Journal event or something. And I, I was like, I was like deer in the headlights. I was like, oh, wait a second. Here's the guy that, <laughs> first of all, I idolize. He's like my hero. Um, that I've also been chasing for like the past three years. And he just passed me. We almost brushed shoulders on the way to the beach. This is so weird. And so I, and I'm thinking... I can't approach him now. Like, he's busy, you know, I, I've got my swimsuit on. This is not appropriate. But, like, I was, like, so I didn't know what to do. So, like, I told my wife, I was, that, that was Malcolm Gladwell. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. And she said, well, put down your stuff and go, go after him. Go, go say hello or something. And so I did put all my stuff down, put the kids down, ran back up the ramp, and you were gone. Well, like I was, a fan. It's funny. I, I have a terrible memory. I remember almost nothing. I remember that day. I don't remember running into you, but I was going for a run. Oh, so okay. I, you know, the minute I got to the top of the stairs, I ran down a road. So that's why I vanished. It wasn't yeah. I'm some kind of magician. I just was in mid-run. Yeah. So to me, you know, my mind works in metaphors, too. That's why I love your books. But I was thinking of, I was thinking about, like, Moby Dick a little bit. Like, you know, you're the big white whale. You know, it's always eluding me. And, you know, I was... Anyway, so, <laughs> like, well, here we are in this moment. Are. Yes, you have <laughs> you've harpooned me, and I am lying, <laughs> or, twitching, yeah. and lifeless on your uh, deck. Well, I think maybe that that I, I'm now sailing in different oceans, 
and and I'm, I've now sailed into your ocean. How about that? Because uh, you know, you you are someone um, who I think is doing great work. And uh, going back to the Malcolm Gladwell brand, I I do think that you're a storyteller. And I wanted to ask you, um, how does it how does it make you feel? What is the impact to you personally to write some of these books? And then also have people, you know, give you feedback, you know, like how mm. it may be changing their perspective. Well, you learn pretty quickly when you write a book that once you've written the book, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the world, um, which is a kind of a, in the beginning, that can be quite painful because you think that it's yours forever. But in the end, but if you think about it and you go through the experience more than once, you think you realize that's kind of beautiful and that what people do is, and then you realize that people, if your book works, people take it and they make it their own. And they take the ideas and they adapt them to whatever question they're trying to answer or problem they're facing. And that's actually kind of lovely. I've that, whenever I see that, I, I feel like I've succeeded at what I'm doing. Um, and it's kind of, it can be a little... Sometimes the ways in which people adapt your ideas, you know, they do a little bit of violence to the ideas. <laughs> but that's okay. That's like, it's all, it's all it's the way the world works. Are you thinking of a particular book where that happened? Uh, more prevalently? Well, pro- probably Outlier. Outliers, you know, many people took pieces of Outliers and ran in many different directions with it. It was quite lovely to see, but it didn't always conform with what I thought I was trying to say. Um but like I said, I I very quickly got over whatever discomfort I might have um, uh, started with. I think that's really good advice. Um, you know, you create it, you put it out in the world, and then it's it's sort of a, this idea of words themselves. You know, the meaning to words are not in the dictionary. The wor- meaning to words are in people. And just depending, if you're a Canadian, you're going to read this differently than if you are an American or from somewhere else, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's sort of no. I think that's the... open to our interpretation. Um, so I want to go back to this idea of finding your passion, finding out uh, what you're good at. I am particularly interested in nature versus nurture. This whole sort of argument or debate. Um, mm-hmm. I can I can share with you why I've shared a lot on this channel about my my personal um, thoughts and experience on that. Uh, I happen to be adopted. So um, mm-hmm. I think a lot about nature or nurture because I have a certain DNA, but then I've also been brought up in an environment that maybe, you know, basically raised by strangers, let's face it, um, who then, uh, you know, became loving parents and took care of me. But uh, what, is, what are your thoughts on nature versus nurture? Were, were you sort of born to do what you're doing or was this a learned trait over time you talk about the you're sort of famous uh you coined the idea of the ten thousand hour rule becoming the the expert what are your thoughts on this well you know my feelings about this i i read i can't for life me remember who wrote it but i i remember reading a paper on this question once which gave what i think of as the most satisfying answer to the nature nurture question and the paper said it was by a geneticist, I think, who said it depends. It depends on the following thing. If you are poor, then uh, 
nurture matters a lot. That it really matters what school you go to. It really matters who your parents, like whether your parents have any money. It really matters whether there's books in the home. It really matters all those things. Uh, so for poor people, nature is a small thing. Nurture's huge. For rich people, it's the opposite. They're maxed out on nurture. Uh, if you go to, if you upgrade the educational experience of children at the leading private schools in Manhattan, it won't make a whit of difference. They're already at 10, right? You're just, for those kids, it's all about your genes. The winners are the ones who have the best set of genes, and the ones who don't make it are the ones who just were born unlucky, right? That, but viewing, in other words, nature and nurture through a class lens is the most clarifying way to think of it. And I think one of our one of the real issues we have as a country is our failure to understand that. We keep pouring resources, uh, directing resources at people who are maxed out on nurture. And we keep directing resources away from people who would benefit enormously from nurture, which is nuts. It's nuts. The school that should be bare bones is Harvard. Harvard should be run. It should be a bunch of... Uh, of of trailers in a park somewhere in central Florida. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Those kids, they will win. They could, you could educate them in a closet and they will be neuroscientists and astrophysicists and run the country. And run yeah. the school that should be lush is a school that's educating kids on Pell Grants. That's the one where nurture matters. What have we done? The exact opposite. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One of the many ways in which we are, as a society, are like, not just insane sometimes. Yeah, I love that observation. When you were describing that, I was imagining Harvard, sort of like that scene from Apollo 13, where they had to take all of the, the scrap pieces and they threw it on the table and they said, we need to figure out how to save the astronauts. Like there wasn't a class. They just like put a bunch of stuff in the middle of the room and there was big brains there so they, they could figure it out. That's the sort of environment that would be great for a Harvard or a, a Yale or, you know, wherever. Or the school that has nothing, they need the art program. They need the mm -hmm. music program. They need the dance program. They need the football team, the the big money. Absolutely. So, so. I mean, I would even say that about myself, that, you know, I was, I don't think I derived any great benefit from the relatively nice education I got in college, I went to a, you know one of Canada's better schools. Didn't make a wit of difference, really didn't. If you had my father and my mother, you're fine. You're set, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I just like the, I, done. I mean, I was I was maxed out on nurture from the minute the God decided that Graham Glabo should be my dad and Joyce Glabo should be my mom. So it's like like that's a that's a it's a very kind of personal observation that I make. And an awful lot of money has been squandered on Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> right? <laughs> enough <laughs> enough with squandering money on Malcolm Gladwell. Let's start spending it where it needs to be spent. So then maybe some advice for parents. What what did your parents do really well to help you get on that path? What do you think it is that they did? Well, they you know, my parents were people with very strong moral convictions, deeply religious. That's hugely important to me. Um, they were people of curiosity who thought the world was worthy of exploration. 
and encouraged by example me to be curious took me places took my brothers places you know whatever you know marginal dollars we had as a family were spent on travel on experiences not on things we didn't even have a television um you know we never ate out we never those the ordinary the kind of luxuries you would associate with a middle class family we didn't have but what my dad did do is to make sure that we got on a plane every second year and went somewhere as a family and like learned something about another culture or you know so that was that to me was like a in retrospect a brilliant choice that's the right move you know use your resources to give your child a broad view of the world and use your energy to give your child a sense of uh, a moral grounding that allows him to interpret the world I love that and so then what advice would you give to young people who are trying to find their passion you know there's a there's an idea that you should pursue what you're passionate about you know Steve Jobs would say that you know you have to be passionate about what you do. Otherwise it's never going to scale. You'll eventually burn out or the other side of the coin, which is you should pursue what you're great at and then figure out how to love it. Where mm-hmm. do you, where do you land on, on either of those? Oh, well, um, let's see. The problem is you don't know what you love until you've tried it. You don't know what you're good at until you've tried it. So maybe you should just try a bunch of things. I think people, are way too cautious and narrow in their um, choices early in life. I think people should look at the period from 14 to 30 as just a chance to try as many different things as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, what I, you know, one thing I did not do that I really wish I had done is the minute I graduated from college, go to another country. Um, I mean, I did. I came to America, but that doesn't count. Yeah. Um, a real another country and that was a huge mistake I don't think I you know and I always counsel people when they're young it's like go go and experience a totally different culture because that'll teach you so much about um, yourself and about others and about how to think and um, make sense of other experiences Um, I mean I guess I so you'd answer the question I don't know how to answer except to say that people should explore first before they decide what their passion is yeah I can co-sign that international experience. I did that. I did a study abroad um, in Japan. I was fascinated with Asia and really wanted to learn more about Asian culture and history and religion and all that. And so basically right out of high school, I I, I lived in Japan. It was fabulous. I learned the language. I fell in love with the people, the food, everything. It was one of the best things I've ever done because it really yeah. opened my eyes. Um to just being so ethnocentric, you know, before I left and then coming back and seeing a whole sort of Eastern philosophy way of, of seeing things from medicine to, again, you know, all of it. So it was just incredibly helpful. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm envious. I should have done the same. What is something that people don't know about Malcolm Gladwell that we, we might not just, we might not know about you from reading your books or from listening to the podcast or... What's something that we may not know? Yeah. Hmm. I sometimes get this question. I never know how to answer it. Well, of course, because, of course, most things about me 
people don't know, right? So you're asking me to pick the thing <laughs> out of the long list of things that people don't know about Malcolm. What is the thing that I would choose to share in this moment? <laughs> yes. Um, well, let's see. Um, uh, but pre you know, I'm really obsessed with cars. Maybe that's... Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, talk about that. So what is the obsession and what kind Ever of car? Ever since I was a kid. Okay. Uh, I never got over the kind of six-year-old, wow, that's a cool car thing. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's probably worse today than uh, it was when I was six. Um, when I used to go, my dad would take me to the Royal Ontario Museum, the big museum in Toronto as a kid, big outing, you know, an hour drive to Toronto, the big city. And he would go in and I would sit on the steps outside all afternoon because um, in Toronto I could see cars that I wouldn't, couldn't see in, my, in our little town. Mm -hmm. um, that was my museum experience. My father spent a lot of time driving me to car dealerships and pretending that he could afford the cars that I wanted to look at. Um, so I, I, don't, I can't even explain it. I just, you know, I can talk forever about cars. I spend huge months of time reading things on cars. I have, you know, friendships with people that are based 100% on cars. Um, <laughs> so it's like, I like cars. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Uh, again, I think there's this Venn diagram uh, appearing between you and I. Like, you know, there's a lot Are you of a car person, right? Uh, yeah, I love cars too. For some, what reason. do you drive? Right now, I have a Mercedes. Um, you, but you, you have to be more specific. Uh, right Mercedes? now, right now, I have a poor man's Mercedes. It's the Mercedes C, a C Class 250 commuter car. It's a I very. Know. What do you mean? I love that car. It and it's a 2013. Because I like the body style. I so uh, do I. I like I that much sharper edges. Yeah. Before it got too softened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A lovely car. I love Mercedes, but I've driven some incredible cars, and it's because um, of some of the work that I've done on the production commercial side. People have been very generous. So probably, and I want to ask you the same question, but I'll volunteer mm -hmm. the the funnest car, the, the most exciting car I've ever driven is the McLaren 650S. Lucky man. Uh, Lucky man. Oh, so amazing. Like, it's like, um, have you driven a, a supercar like that before? You know, I hate to say that I have not driven a supercar. I mean, I've driven a nice car, not a supercar. So when you get the chance, and I would love to take you for a ride in a McLaren because I have some, some connections. Yeah. Um, and most supercars are like this, I found. But anyway, the McLaren is like, it, it's like what you would imagine, like first person uh, experience in a Panther. It's like constantly lurching forward. It doesn't like first gear at all because, you know, it likes to be at 140 miles an hour. Yeah. And and so actually the most painful thing about driving a McLaren is is having to drive the speed limit because it, it does not want to go. Like if you're going 80, it feels like you're going 20. I know. It's so low to the ground, aerodynamic, and it's got the butterfly doors and, and yeah, no I had joke. The same. I had a, a Boxster GTS. Oh yeah. Beautiful automobile, uh, which I got rid of for that very reason, which was, it was always unhappy at the speeds I was driving it. Mm -hmm. It didn't, it just doesn't want to drive 60 miles an hour. Yeah. And, I, and you would, you'd think you're driving on a normal pace, and you'd look down, and you're going 120 miles an hour. I was yeah. like, I can't, 
this is just you can't do this. It's like you can't drive around. You can't drive around upstate New York 120 miles an hour because your car fools you into thinking that it's, you know. So I got rid of it. It's a really yeah. sad day. Yeah. Well, I, I and I just have these dreams of maybe the autobahn one day. Like I can imagine driving a Porsche that fast on an open road. You know, that's designed to for those mm-hmm. speeds. I also yeah. had a chance to drive the uh, the Lamborghini uh, Urus, which is basically. Oh, yeah. a, a family car <laughs> that's seven quarter million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. For the for those for those periods when you would like to, to take your family and small children uh at speeds in excess of two hundred miles an hour, that car is perfect. Yeah. Well and it's designed to go off roading too, is is the funny thing. It's like they yeah. they show it going through sand and snow and dirt and I thought, why would I ever want to drive this anywhere where it gets scratched up? But apparently it's got the suspension and the yeah, and all that to do it. Well, that's interesting. Cars. You're a car guy. I had no idea. Uh, are do you like classic cars at all? Or are you more a modern guy? Mm. What's your dream car right now? If you could drive one. Uh, dream car. Can I have? Well, I have a. I have a 2003 uh, BMW M5 E39, uh, which is great car. Pretty pretty close to my dream car. Um, and I don't like. I'm not a vintage guy. I don't because I don't work on them, so you know it gets super problematic when the car gets too old. Um, and I like, but I don't like super, you know, contemporary cars. I think cars kind of I like them when they I like the like for example the M5 is a um, you know it's the it's the last great analog sports sedan, and I'm very fond of the the perfected analog era. I'm a you know I'm a manual transmission guy. I'm yeah purist. Yeah, I love yeah. it too. Um, so, um, you know, I don't own a Tesla, probably won't, um, ever own a Tesla or maybe someday I want don't never say never. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand that actually very well. Cause you know, if you're driving in traffic, you know, manual transmission is not that fun, but otherwise it's the only way to drive. Cause you feel like you're driving. Yeah. Yeah. My first car was a 69 Volkswagen Beetle. Nice. Nice. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so let's switch gears and talk about Bomber Mafia a little bit. I want yes. to talk about um, right. why you wrote the book. I was it, waiting for you to come to the Bomber Mafia. It's like the, the, the reason for my existence at the moment. Well, I'm thrilled. And, you know, the publisher sent it to me just a couple of days ago. So I'm, I'm just diving in. But I sort of know the premise mm-hmm. um, because I'm a fan of, Japan, I sort of understand, uh, yeah. and I'm interested and intrigued in the, mm. you know, the the storyline and and all that. But talk to me about the book, why you wrote it, who you wrote it for, is there a metaphor for something else? Like, what's the story? Well, it was you know it's an audio book that has a print offshoot, so it was written because I did on my podcast a kind of little piece of it and was so uh, enamored and caught up in that world and particularly in the way that world sounded and I realized there was a way to tell a, a war story through audio that would be incredibly powerful um, and also because so much of that stuff because it, it involves armies armies keep records and so you can get there's hours and hours of tape of Every major figure in the book, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, this is from 70-odd years ago, I have tape of them talking. I mean, I have, I have hours of tape of them that I could use. So you can bring it all to life. It's this really extraordinary opportunity. And there was something uh, as well about the story. So the story is about a, a band of kind of renegade pilots in central Alabama in the 1930s who think they can reinvent war. They call themselves the Bomber Mafia. And they think that by taking this newfangled thing called an airplane and figuring out how to drop, drop bombs accurately, they can render conventional armies obsolete. And yeah. nobody believes in them. Everyone thinks they're nuts. And the Second World War rolls around just as they are at the height of their philosophizing and theorizing. And they get this opportunity to put their crazy ideas into action. And this book is about what happens. What happens when a group of innovators have a, it's beyond radical. It's sort of hard to describe just what they were pushing in those years. They, they you know, we use the word disruption now. They were doing more than disrupting war. They were completely reinventing it from the ground yeah. up. And the Second World War, and what's weird is this story is so infrequently told about the Second World War. The Second World War is the kind of testing ground for this incredibly radical notion about can we wage war in a better way, in a more humane way. And yeah. they fail. The Bomber Mafia does. And this book is the story of an extraordinary idea and what happened when it confronts reality. And it's a, the reason, and I wanted to write it because I thought it, there was something so incredibly contemporary about that notion. Yeah. Now when we're reinventing and, everything, you know. And, and maybe it's worth noting by comparison, without spoilers, that they basically lost to the Manhattan Project, right? That's the... Yeah, that's, that's one way of thinking that's, about that's it. That's who they lost to. They were the competitors. That's right. There were two parallel um, innovations, technological innovations, that were... And it, it's funny because <clears throat> we only ever talk about the Manhattan Project, but we forget that the Bomber Mafia's project cost more money than the Manhattan Project did. Like, way more resources were directed towards the Bomber Mafia than were directed towards, you know, Oppenheimer and all the guys out in the desert. And so these were two ideas that were diametrically opposite ideas about how to fight a war. Yeah. And the One was just like total decimation, civilians, women, children, doesn't matter, bomb animals. Yeah. The other one was surgical. Yeah, it was surgical. It was pilots versus physicists, and the physicists won. Setting the stage, by the way, for the second half of the 20th century, which is all about the triumph of the physicists. You know, the physicists won all, all over the place in the latter half of the 20th century. Yeah. So, so is there a metaphor? What's, what is the, what's the takeaway message beyond the completely compelling, thrilling, interesting um, storyline? Is there, is there a higher takeaway? Yeah. Is there a metaphor there's a, here? There's a number. And every time I think about the book, I come up with a different takeaway. <laughs> One of them most certainly is how much we need dreamers. That these guys are dreamers, the Palmer Mafia. Yeah. Um, they are, you know, the, the, the man, I, I spend a lot of time on a guy named Haywood Hansel, who is the kind of yeah. romantic at the heart of the Bomber Mafia, kind of de facto leader of the group. And Haywood Hansel is a romantic. 
He really is. He's a he's someone who has this kind of his favorite book is Don Quixote. He he thinks of himself as the knight tilting at windmills. He knows that the odds of him pulling off this grandiose reimagining of war are slender, and he tries it anyway. And he tries it in Europe, and it fails, and he keeps trying it. And he goes to Japan and fails and wants to keep trying. And when they finally get rid of him, he can't believe he's been sacked. He's, and I realize I love this man, and I want more of him in the world. You know, just people who, uh, he, he had a passion for, that was fueled by a moral notion. The moral notion was he had observed the First World War and had seen the, just the devastating carnage. And he said, we can't do that again. And he said, I think I can solve that problem technologically. And people yeah. who want to use technology for moral ends are, to my mind, heroes. Uh, and people who use technology without, without considering moral ends are, to my mind, villains. And Hansel's a hero. But he also, is his career ends in disgrace. I mean, he's and he's forgotten by history. This is the story I t- tell in this book. is largely untold. It's, it's sort of odd. It, the, all of these guys and their passion have kind of dropped out of sight. And what do we have? We have shelves and shelves of books about the atomic bomb, and almost nothing on the idea that was trying to confront it. So it seems like to me. All of your books are basically this holding up a mirror to society or holding up a mirror to us, the reader, hoping that we'll see our reflection or maybe the reflection of someone we know, someone we don't want to be or someone who we want to be. Um, Is the message in Bomber Mafia about this failure that it's not about the result, it's about the effort, it's about the, the mindset, like the willingness to try, to have the courage? Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of this book is about the importance of failure. Um, failure, I mean, I was attracted to the story because for me, failure is always more interesting than success, um, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. a storyteller. I remember once I, yeah. I spent a year tracking a guy who ran a biotech company who was trying to come up with a new treatment for um, melanoma, the hardest of all, one of the hardest of all cancers to treat. And... Their phase one trials were incredibly promising. And he had this little company in Boston, and he thought, he thought he'd, he'd cracked the, this thing that no one else had cracked. So I followed him for a year through all phase two, phase three, right up to the point where they got the decision from the FDA, and I was there when the FDA said it doesn't work. And I wrote the piece, and I, wanted, I remember somebody writing a commentary on, on his piece for The New Yorker and saying, you know, boy, Glabo blew it. You know, he <laughs> thought he was going to get this story about how they beat melanoma, and he didn't. And I was like, you know, it's to- 100% wrong. Um, you missed the point. You missed the point. The point is that both those stories are powerful. It would have been for different reasons. You know, if you have melanoma, the great story is, or if you're a human being who cares about the world, the great story is that the drug works. If you're thinking about a powerful emotional story that you can draw lessons from, the great story is it didn't work in the end. And a group of people poured their heart and soul into something um, and for five years. 
and it all ended up in tears. But in so doing, because they failed, they have clarified the problem for the next person who comes along, right? That's the, we never talk about how failure is a contribution to our knowledge, right? It's to say that something doesn't work is in the end of the day as useful as saying something does work because it points you in the right direction. You don't get to where you want to go unless a bunch of people fail before you. And so that's why you can't brush aside the failures and say that they wasted their time. They didn't waste their time. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's worth reflecting on, you know, all of this, right? It's uh, We're building it brick by brick. We're standing on the shoulders of the great ones. You look at... Uh, I don't know anything about astrophysics or 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 that that uh, discipline, but Sir Isaac Newton, you know, got us to a certain point, and then Einstein took it the rest of the way. And uh, I was d- talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson about this. He said uh, Einstein couldn't have done what he did, the theory of relativity and all of that, without the base foundation work of Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, even though some would say that. Einstein proved Newton yeah. wrong. No, you know he he got us to as far as he could get us based on the time yeah. period in which he lived, and then then Einstein brought it home. And so that also gives us hope for the future as we look down the stream. It's like we what we're doing now matters. Mm-hmm. So let's stay on that theme for just a second. I was going to say on that theme, that's exactly what the Bomber Mafia do: is they clarify for the next generation what the aim of modern warfare should be. So that if you think about what war looks like today, war today is obsessed with the idea of precision, right? That yeah, drones. Drone, all of these technologies, radar, drones, they're all GPS, are all about using what used to be weapons of mass destruction and making them me- methods of, of precision and discretion. Um, yeah, satellites, satellites I mean, I endlessly, I was remember when I was reporting this book, hanging around with these... Air Force generals, and they desperately wanted me to fa- talk to this guy who's the kind of, not the father of GPS, but the guy who takes GPS, the concept, and makes it real for the Air Force and for, and he's like some, no one's ever heard of him. He's off in the middle of nowhere. And they're, they were so obsessed with this guy. Correctly, they were like, that guy created our world. GPS, GPS yeah. is what the Air Force is about, right? It is about yeah. Landing the bomb exactly where you want to land it so that you don't kill someone who's innocent. And that idea that that should be what the Air Force is about begins in the 1930s with a bunch of guys, the Bomber Mafia, who failed. Spectacularly failed. Yeah. Right? The book is about, yeah. it ends, the Bomber Mafia ends with the story of a failure, their failure, which was the result of their failure was the one of the deadliest nights of war in the history of mankind. I mean, yeah. so it's like, it's yeah. not garden variety failure. These are people who were haunted for the rest of their life about what they couldn't accomplish. And yet, in the end, we're better off because of that. So if, if failure is an option, it is necessary to get to success or get to the objective. Um, how should we be measuring our own success? Let's bring it back to the everyday person who's got, let's call them an entrepreneur, and she's running her business, and she's disappointed because 
she doesn't have the metrics or the optics or the revenue. What, how should we be measuring success mm-hmm. when it feels like all we're doing is failing? Yeah. Well, maybe we need to expand our definitions of success. So, um, you know, one definition of success is my company makes money and, you know, and grows and et cetera, et cetera. But th- that's never going to be possible for every entrant, is it? Um, it's not the way a market economy works. There, like you, and what we've been saying over the last five minutes is there have to be failures in order to, for successes to happen. You know, the iPhone required the Palm Pilot to, you know, go belly up for it to work, right? Pave the way. I mean, we can come up with a million examples. So maybe what we should do, you know, in, in Outliers, I had this definition of success. Success was if you were able to do autonomous work, so to be in control of, your, of the work you do, um, if your work is difficult, and that is it, that, that it engages your mind. It's not rote or... And third, that um, there is a relationship between effort and reward, that if you work harder and try harder, you get something back. Now, that could be money, but it could be also something else, satisfaction, uh, uh, congratulation, you know, recognition. It just has to be. And when work meets those three criteria, that is, you are a success. And, and you can, yeah. so you can have a company that goes belly up and consider yourself by those three criterion to be successful. Maybe as we, we round third, bring it home, um, do you have a process? So what is your process as you're looking at different projects? And, and forgive me if if I don't know, but have you ever considered taking any of these books or maybe Bomber Mafia and turning it into like a Ken Burns-style documentary film, like a full-length film? Well, no, I, I hate video. I just hate Once you have a camera... <laughs> Once you want to record a kid, then you need a crew, and then you need 10 times as much money, and then the whole process takes five years as opposed to one year, and then you have the headache of how to distribute <laughs> it, and on and on and on and on and on. I, I got no time for that. And, like, you got to do seven Whoa. takes, and then they're adjusting your makeup. Well, wait and a second. It's like, wait a second. Like, Michael Crichton wrote this book that became a decently uh, successful franchise, or Tom Clancy, you know, any of these... I mean, they, they basically they just wrote the screenplay. Couldn't you just be the screenwriter? You know how hard it is to be. A, my best friend is a screenwriter. He will remind me every day. You can't waltz in and be a screenwriter. It's like saying I, you know, I should maybe I should just try neurosurgery. Do you think Mount Sinai will let me try neurosurgery? No, they won't. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking of a book like Bomber Mafia. It just sounds. I can already kind of see oh, the movie in my, in my mind. I don't want any part of it. But somebody wants to come along and yeah. You know, write me a big check and go go off and make a movie out of the Bar Mafia. Be my guest. I would be delighted. Okay. Maybe that person's me. We'll see. I mean, I know Brian, a few people you here are in Hollywood. More than we'll welcome see. to it. You are. I'll give you a special <laughs> deal. <laughs> who would pl- who would play who would play the lead? Who Our would play um, your, your hero? Yeah, who would play that? Is that Matt Damon? No, Matt Damon is too. Um, is too. Uh, Actually, Matt Damon. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll give you Matt Damon. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and he yeah, sort of has that Danish look. affair right? about him, yes. Yeah. Uh, who who would play, who would play the, the villain? Mm-hmm. 
Curtis Demay is a young Jack Nicholson. Uh, mm. But uh, so that's Leo DiCaprio. No, Leo DiCaprio is too handsome and too. Curtis LeMay is a is a kind of tough guy. He's hard bitten. In the day, this dates me. Charles Bronson would play him. Mm-hmm. You know, muttering, man, a few words, yeah. kind of has a kind of physicality to him. Leo DiCaprio doesn't have the kind of necessary physicality. He's too cerebral for that. For Curtis May was like a hands-on pilot. He's like one of the great pilots of his generation. He's famous for like fixing B-29 bombers himself. Like that's not Leo DiCaprio, right? That's someone else. Um, but um, so yeah, yeah. But there's something in something in that kind of early Jack Nicholas, Jack Nic- uh, Jack Nicholson. Mode. Yeah. And so, what does what does the process look like for you when you choose a project? Um, you you sort of find a th- seems like you find a thread of a story. You start pulling at it, and maybe you discover something that no one else has considered, or you see something that no one else can see, and you feel like you want to tell that story. But how long does it take you to write a book like Bomber Mafia? Is this a five year pro- you know project in the making? Is well, it, I did. Did it happen in six weeks? I mean, I did or? it in the calendar year 2020 so i started i started did because i did a couple of podcast episodes based on it and those were reported in right. early part of last year and then i finished my reporting in the fall and i wrote it in the fall uh i guess in the beginning of finished and recorded it we produced it we've been producing it since in last two months so it wasn't there's a lot of tape. I mean, when you're doing audiobooks, this is really an audiobook, as I've said. Audiobooks are a little less time-consuming because you're relying on tape. And, you know, so that you right. can... A lot of your narrative can be carried in someone else's voice. So it's not like you have to write everything yeah. yourself. Yeah, in the Revisionist uh, podcast, it, it seemed like it was maybe three five parts, parts, parts. A five-part story? Or yeah, so I turned three, three parts, parts into yeah. essentially seven parts. That was the trick. Yeah. 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 I guess I'm thinking about that or speaking to, to current or prospective authors who are thinking about uh, turning an idea like that into a book. Um, the critic might say that there's a lot of filler in there because you've got the the transcripts or the, you know, the, the actual history did most mm-hmm. of the work for you. But I doubt that that is the case. I think you really have to probably be quite a historian researcher to sift through what I would imagine like a Costco size warehouse of archives. I have a lot of books on bombing. Um, Yeah. And, but yeah, but you do, you're really curating a lot of it. It's, it's different from writing a book, you know, so I, you know, you go to the archives of the air force university and you go through all their reels and reels and reels of tape and you decide whose voice you want to represent in the book. And that, you know, that drives, that's the decision you're making as the author. You're not writing. Yeah. They're, they're telling their story for you. You're maybe writing around it and setting yeah. it up. But you're, it's really about whose story do you want to tell. That's the, it's a day different question. Right. One of the reasons why doing audio is so interesting to me because it is a very different process than writing a book, a conventional book. And it seems like you do like, I mean, you you are the David in all of your stories. You're the underdog. Is that a true statement? And if so, 
why do you sort of write the underdog story or the story that's never really told? Why is that a thing? Well, why would I write a book about a subject that people already know about? That's why I'm always in, you know, I'm always in awe of people who write about politics because you're writing about a subject that we're all such fanatic observers of politics. If you're the person writing the 700s article on Donald Trump, how do you do that? I don't know how you do that. I mean, can you tell? Can you possibly say anything new about that man at this point? So I prefer green fields um, to plowed fields. Yeah. I love that. And, and I, that, the reason I love it is because I fancy myself as an underdog. I always have. Um, even when I'm succeeding, I still feel like the underdog. But I also think that representation matters. So when you write about marginalized people or communities or ethnicities or genders, I think representation is important for people to see them as mm -hmm. heroes overcoming adversity is not just the Luke Skywalker, you know, <laughs> uh, archetype type of guy, you know, I think, in, again, looking at your body of work, for the most part, it seems like that's also a thread. You like to talk about people who don't get the spotlight much and deserve it. Yeah, no, that's a shine, shine a light in an unusual direction. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up. Reminiscing about the good old days and all that. You know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders too biased, they all liars. I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda admired. Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it. Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say it. Said I was quitting at 40 is just a fib. I'm still a kid that's wiping the food off of my bib. You ever wanted something so bad that you could taste it?